Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. We're going we're gonna to continue on in the series we've been in. Uh, what we're looking at is we're looking at the progressive, uh, the progressive experience of the Spirit in our life. That there's always more, and we need to realize that. There's always more, if for no other reason, we're finite and God's infinite. You'll never plumb the depths of who he is. You can, until you're God, you have to remain teachable, because only God knows everything, and you never will be, so remain teachable. We'll be learning for eternity, and there's always more in God, and there's dangerous theology that says, you have it all, so calm down. As your faith is, so be it unto you. And so there's always more in God. And so we've been using this analogy uh, of, in Scripture, this typology that's all through Scripture, of water being a type of the Spirit. And so we talked about in Isaiah. Isaiah said, we drink, we draw joy from the wells of salvation. So our first drink of the Spirit is in salvation. He comes to reside in us in measure. Then we are filled with the Spirit in the baptism in the Holy Spirit, we take a drink that is then becomes a river that's released from us. And in salvation, we partake of him. In the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we become a source of supply. In salvation, the Spirit resides in us. In the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we enter into the Spirit. Uh, in salvation, you take a drink. In the baptism, you take a bath. We are submerged into him. We come up dripping, saturated, dripping with his presence. But there's a further analogy, and we love this one around here, and that is of outpourings, the reign of the Spirit, uh, revivalism, the outpourings of the Spirit, and those seasons are awesome. And that's the way we replenish the river. Paul is very clear that we are to keep on being filled to the Spirit. There is an initial baptism, but there's many infillings. And often those infillings happen when we get connected with a larger group of believers who are contending for an outpouring, and there are seasons of rain where God replenishes our river. I want a replenishing. I'm not, I'm not dry, but I, I, I can handle some more. I want it running over the banks. I, I love revival. But then we talked about the last couple weeks, I shared with you an encounter I had with the Lord in 2009. Uh, really, it was 2010. Uh, I had walked out the side, uh, out looking over the, the, uh, the monkey bars. What is that? Playground. The kids' playground. Uh, here and it was during a, a time of soaking at the congregation and I was I was in danger of snorking that's when you snore when you soak and so being the pastor I didn't want to do that that just doesn't look good you know you're speaking in tongues you start it's just not it's not proper so I got up and I walked out there and I looked out that side window and when I did I went into a vision and I saw this dome this translucent dome over Heartland with this oil just dripping out over the whole property. And we were under this, this dome of God's glory. And I was so excited. I was blown away at what the Lord was showing me. And then he spoke a couple of personal things to me. And then he said this, the dew of Hermon will be released. And I shared with you last week that I was excited by what I saw, but disappointed by what I heard. Because to me, do doesn't sound exciting. Outpourings sound exciting. But do, do not. <laughs> Do's not to sound exciting. It's a pss, pss. I wanted outpouring. I wanted power, the lightnings of God. But the Lord told me, I said, God, why do? And he said, it's my non-disruptive way to nourish the land. And when he said that, it so ministered to my heart because we had been through a move of God, a, a tremendous uh, move of God over months, a, about a year and a half prior to that, and uh, I was still tired from that time. It was exhausting. And I realized the disruptive nature of an outpouring. And although they're necessary, they're disruptive. When you've had famine and we pray for rain, it's disruptive, but it's necessary. There's seasons where we've seen the pond start to go low. The streams around Iowa go low, and we rejoice in the rain. But usually we still wait to, for a break in the rain to go to our car, unless you've really been in, in uh, 
famine and you might be one of those crazy people that dances in the parking lot and sings in the rain for a few minutes, but you don't do that every time you, because it's disruptive. And, and uh, so I began to talk to the Lord about this and another thing he said to me, which really edited my theology, it shocked me, I almost argued with him, but he's a lot smarter than me. Uh, he said, outpourings were made necessary by the fall. And as I began to meditate on that, I thought, you know, Lord, you're right. You always are. But you're right. Uh, it never rained in paradise. The heavens never opened until sin had come to a certain point in humanity. Adam and Eve were driven from the garden, but as the thoughts of man were continually towards violence, then the, the deeps opened up and the skies opened up and there was a flood. And that's when it began to rain. And so what we talk about is outpourings are necessary because of sin, but it's not the superior expression God wants us to go for. Now we're praying for revival, and I rejoice every time I hear of one, but I'm telling you the superior expression, the zenith of what God wants to release, and we have a promise in this house of this thing. The Lord told me in an open vision, the dew of Hermon will be released here. And I do not believe we've yet touched the fullness of that word. And what he told me was that it was going to be released here. And the idea is this, that we begin to no longer be dependent upon outpourings because we are nourished by accessing the hidden caverns within one another. In paradise, it did not rain there were caverns under the earth that would emit a mist and it would nourish the land. And it was called paradise. And God longs to bless environments that step into what we call the unity of the spirit or the dew of Hermon. So let's look at Psalm 133. I'm just gonna read these quick three verses and uh, we're gonna spring into another passage. Father, we ask God that this morning that you would anoint our ears to hear. And Lord, we, as we speak of rain, Lord, I pray along with Moses' phrase, Lord, that your teaching would fall like rain. Lord, on our hungry hearts, our parched, cracked hearts, Lord, that your word would begin to nourish those areas of our hearts where they're dry. Lord, I ask for a spirit of wisdom and revelation that we would have flashes of insight and understanding we didn't have when we stepped in here this morning. And Lord, that you would move us along corporately as your people, that you would accomplish what you want to accomplish in and through us, that you would receive the rewards of your suffering. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 133, and this is part of the biblical text. It starts with this phrase, a song of ascents of David. And I, I mentioned this last week. This is one of the songs of ascent. There were a, a body of, of psalms that were sung as they made their way to the temple. They would step on a stair, read the psalm, step up the next stair, sing out that song and so forth. And Psalm 133 was one of them. But I believe there's a prophetic element to that phrase that this is a psalm that holds the keys to going higher, to ascending. Verse one, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And so he's, he's giving us a vision for something, trying to present are, are instilling us a value for something, something that you and I don't realize the great value of. And that is when brothers dwell in unity together. It's both good and pleasant. It's good for you, but it's also pleasant. And those aren't always a package deal. Some things that are good for you aren't pleasant and vice versa, but this is both, hallelujah. Verse two, and he, so he gives us two analogies. It's like the precious oil on Aaron's head running down his beard, uh, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar or the hem of his robe. We talked about that. Uh, then number three is the one we're really going after because it's the one the Lord spoke to me. It is the dew of, is like the dew of Hermon what would fall on the mountains of Zion. And then he closes it with this blessing. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing. And then he defines it, life forevermore. All last week, 
And really, the week before, as we've been praying in the sanctuary, we, we meet for prayer Tuesday through Friday. And as I've been just, I, I like to walk and pray. Uh, and so as I'm walking, I kept seeing this picture of these giant grapes. I'm talking, they were about this big around. And the vine was just bending low under the weight of the fruit. And I just kept feeling the Lord invite me to make that declaration of fruitfulness, of life forevermore to be released into the environment. There is an invitation from God. There's a fruitfulness that we're about to step into. There has been a pruning, a necessary but painful pruning in many of our lives, corporately and individually. When God sees a fruitful vine, he prunes it. He cuts it back so that it can be even more fruitful later on. And if you'll endure with the right attitude, the pruning process, you'll find more fruit on the horizon. And I believe there's greater fruitfulness on the horizon. There's a heavy ladenness to the vine. And so there's a declaration of blessing forevermore. Now, I want you to catch this. It's a commanded blessing. The Lord himself says there, there is a place, a circumstance which he commands a blessing. I'm gonna tell you, when God commands a blessing, there is no demon in hell, no person on earth that can stop that blessing from arriving at your doorstep. There is a place that God commands a blessing. There is a context through which God guarantees a blessing. I am not shy about it, I want the blessing. I am hungry for the blessed life. I wanna live in the blessing of God. I wanna live a fruitful life. And I understand, the fruit I produce is not for my own consumption. You don't see grapevines eating grapes. They produce them so others can come by and enjoy the fruit. And God wants to produce a fruitfulness out of this house that will feed the nations. So it begs the question, how do we step into that place? What are the circumstances that will guarantee that commanded blessing? If we can answer that question and dedicate our life to that, we will guarantee the blessing. Rather than praying for blessing, maybe what we need to do is pray that we can be blessable. I don't know if that's a word, it is now. We just created a word. That we wanna be blessable. We wanna, be, we wanna meet the criteria of heaven. God, what is, what is the man or the woman that you will bless? What does that man or woman look like? What is it to walk in life forevermore? I want life to emanate from me. I don't want people to come up and there's just death or there's just, there's no life. I don't want them to shake a cold hand and feel no life from my words. I want the drippings from heaven to be flowing off my life. I want that for you. I want when people step into this building, they encounter the life of God, that they know, oh my goodness, there is a presence from another world in this room. They, I, I, I'm reminded of that, that testimony Tommy Tenney had in his book, um, The God Chasers. He was, he was talking with this young pastor and this pastor was sharing the story. Their, their church had moved into a tremendous outpouring during this season. And he had a brother-in-law who was an atheist. Not only was he an atheist, he was an evangelistic one. He was very willing to share his atheism with anybody that would listen. He was a cynic and an atheist. And therefore, there was a bit of a strain in their relationship because one was a preacher and one was an evangelistic atheist. Well, lo and behold, in the middle of this move of God, they, people would drive by the church and just pull off in the grass and come in and get saved. It was an amazing, the blessing of God was literally on their geographic location. And in the midst of that move, the, athe the evangelistic atheist brother-in-law calls the pastor and says, hey, I'm gonna come for a visit. And he said, oh, okay. And he's thinking, this will be awkward. He said, yeah, I, I, and he, I'm going to be flying in at such and such a time. Can you pick me up? Absolutely, I'll pick you up from the airport. So they're coming home from the airport, and it, you know, it's, he's trying to talk, but the guy's not real open. And, and uh, so they're driving by the church. He said, hey, we put new carpet in. Do you want to see it? Just trying to make conversation. You guys said, sure. 
They walked up to the church. The pastor unlocked the door, opened the door. The brother-in-law put one foot on the threshold, fell down, began to weep, and got gloriously saved. Later on, the shocked pastor asked him, he said, what happened? He said, I don't know. All I can tell you is this, that when I stepped up to the door, I didn't believe in God, but once I was in that church, I was in the presence of the one I didn't believe existed, and I had to surrender. That's what I want. There is a place in God where God will entrust a level of his presence to those people if they will steward it well. Last night, my 17-year-old said, Dad, can we just go down to the church? I'm studying. I thought, well, I guess I could study there. That's not a bad thing. (laughs) So he just wanted to come in the sanctuary, and I was in my office just praying and reading and studying and I thought, man, he's been in there a long time. I'm going to go in. And I came in, I could hear him singing. So I just kind of backed out. Went back to my office. I said, Jesus, what are you doing? Finally, it was, we'd been here several hours. I walked in, he was just laid there, and he looked up. He said, hey, Dad. <laughs> we got in the car. He said, he's working with the kids this morning, so I'm not embarrassing him. He can't hear me. He said, hey, Dad, he said, I think we ought to do this every Saturday. He said, I just like being here. I like being in that room. So we began to talk about there's there's places that have been cultivated with God's presence. And he said, you know, Dad, not every band you hear carries the presence, and, and it's a lot like places, isn't it? Not every place carries the same amount of presence. And I told him, I said, God is not picky where he'll show up. Doesn't have to be a real nice place, but he has to be the guest of honor. Not because he's arrogant, but because he cannot entrust himself to people who will not value him. Told the children of Israel, I can't go with you because they weren't obedient. The presence of God in the midst of a disobedient people is a dangerous thing. It's why the front end of revival is always repentance where people are preparing their heart and getting their heart right so that he can be stewarded as the guest of honor. And where he is the guest of honor, be it a barn, a manger, or a cathedral, he will come. God is looking for places to land. He's looking for places to occupy. Where is that blessing? The blessing is the place of unity. Now, I talked last week, and, and I love this. I started getting texts. What do you mean by unity, Pastor? Define that. I think that's what I need because I don't want to scratch itches that don't exist or not scratch an itch that does exist. And I am painfully aware I'm more of a philosophical preacher, I'm not real practical. So just ask me questions, and I'll try to be more definitive. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Turn with me to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4. I told you. Uh, last week, I believe it was, that I personally believe Psalm 133 lays over Ephesians 4 very beautifully. You could say that they're both dealing with the same subject. Psalm 133 from an Old Testament perspective, Ephesians 4 from the New Testament perspective of the church. When he talks about the oil flowing down, he's talking about five-fold ministry. We're not going to get into that this morning. We've taught on that before. But when we're talking about the, the dew being transferred from one mountain to another, it's talking about that mutual exchange of honor that we recognize what one another carries. And it's very, very clear in Ephesians 4 that we each have a measure of the gift of Christ, but we can't touch the fullness of Christ without being connected to other believers. Because God will not release the fullness of himself to an individual. There's only one man that ever touched that, and that is Jesus. The Apostle Paul didn't touch that. It was the Apostle Paul that carried the revelation that the body is the fullness of Christ. And God will never give me all I need directly. He will give me much of what I need indirectly through you. And he will, with, if I refuse to get with you, he will withhold it from me. 
Because God intends that we are mutually dependent upon one another. And it's in that way that we're no longer dependent upon outpourings, the heavens opening, that even when there's no rain, we can access the hidden caverns of anointing within one another. But, and we talked about this last week, but let me just touch on it. You may not have been here. That we've got to be so careful because the test of honor is familiarity. It's so easy once you get to know someone to no longer appreciate what they carry. You stumble over what they're not and fail to receive what they are. There's a mature level of honor that can say, hey, we're all in process and I know your weaknesses, but I also value what you carry in God. You know, God is less picky than we are. God will anoint people we don't agree he, would, he should anoint. I'm not talking moral issues here. I'm talking idiosyncrasies and even irritations. Sometimes God will give, he will place the thing you need the most in the most irritating person in the room. We could just go home right on that. Yeah. So we've got to pass that test of familiarity. There is a level of maturity required of a body that really becomes a place of honor where we can accept one another's giftings. It's easy to honor a mystery. You bring in some famous person that has these great stories of miracles overseas or whatever, and, but you don't live with them. And they come in and God's moving through them and they say these profound things. But you're not rubbing shoulders with them day to day where the, the fractures in their personality begin to be revealed. It's one thing to honor a mystery. It's another thing to honor familiarity. It's a higher level of maturity when you can say, I receive God in you, the anointing on you, the insight that comes through you, even though I know that you're not perfect. And so a lot of times, churches don't break into that. They, they cut themselves off from that final progressive expression, the ultimate they can experience outpourings, but they can't maintain what they obtain because it's got to be maintained through the unity of the Spirit. So they break into things and they lose ground, and they break into things and they lose ground. And God wants to call us higher and teach us to really honor one another. Create a prophetic culture that believes in one another before we believe in ourselves. That we call each other higher. And when one goes up, we all get to go up. That's, right. that's the whole idea of the dew of Hermon. How can the dew that's on Mount Hermon, it's up in the north, of, uh, the north part of Israel, it's a wetter climate, fall on Mount Zion, which is in the south, and it's a, a drier climate. It's too far apart. You're not going to have dew show up there, and you're going to take your bucket full on Mount Zion. It's a supernatural thing. That is the point, that when there's unity, when one mountain gets wet, the other is soaked as well. Your victory becomes my victory. And it, it, it undermines competition and that jealousy that, that encroaches into churches. I don't have to have the beautiful pipes to be able to get up here and sing and lead you in worship. I don't need that gift because I have the worship leaders. I'm in covenantal relationship with them. And because I have them, I have their gift. And I can, I can cheer them on. And when they get a win, I know that's my win too. We're in this thing together. When God anoints them, I'm on the front, front row getting wet. And it, it causes us to fight for one another as kingdom family. That's what God wants to bring us into. So let's look at how, how, what is, what's the nature of this unity? Because I got some texts, and I want to try to answer that. And, oh boy, we're going to take communion, receive communion in a few minutes, and that was just the intro. Look, look at verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have received. There is so much in that phrase. Paul is referring to the calling that he has unpacked in chapters 1 through 3. Uh, there, he, he talks about how the church 
is the fullness of God. It's to teach the principalities and powers in heavenly realms the wisdom of heaven, the wisdom of God. God is going to force. It's like he, his, Psalm 82 refers to these principalities and powers as the fallen sons of God. And they're under his judgment. And he's taking these rebellious sons and forcing them to go to Sunday school. You know what the Sunday school is? Your life. The church. And he says, watch this. I'm going to force you to learn my wisdom by watching my church walk through what they walk through. And the ignorant principalities and powers in heavenly realms learn of the wisdom of God through your and my life. And there's more that Paul unpacks in Ephesians. It's, it's an amazing book of the mysteries that he unpacks. And then he shifts gears. He goes, he stops teaching on doctrine and now he's gonna get real practical like Pastor Dave fails to do a lot. He gets real practical. He said, walk worthy of the calling. The word worthy there, it's translated worthily. Uh, it literally means a counterbalance. And it, the idea is that with, if you have 10 pounds on one side of the scale, you need to put 10 pounds on the other to counterbalance it. If you got a calling, a 10-pound calling, a two-pound lifestyle won't balance the scale. If you got a 10-pound calling, you need to walk in a 10-pound lifestyle. Or you will fail to live up to the calling. You're not living worthily. Some of you have been going through some 10-pound trials because you are called to a 10-pound calling. And you're wondering why God has allowed the things you're going through. He's wondering why you, he's allowing you to go through it. Man, God, what, these other people that don't have to go through this stuff. Well, I want to just tell you one thing is that everybody has their heartache. Everybody has their story. I remember one time, people don't say this to me anymore, but years ago we had some missionaries in. And we, were, we took them out to lunch afterwards and uh, we were talking about just things, you know, life and stuff. We had shared that one of our children had passed away at four, and we have a daughter that's handicapped and stuff. And the missionary's wife blurted out, Whew. she said, I, I was wondering if you guys had any problems. You got this great church. And she said, you're beautiful. I'm looking at my wife. They still say that to my wife. They don't say that to me anymore. I thought, well, thank you. She said, she said you guys look like you have a charmed life. And I'll hear people say, everybody has their story. Everybody has their heartache. Don't compare yourself and allow yourself to get jealous because someone else's breakthrough in the church you attend is your breakthrough if you, if you handle it right. And if you're going through things other people haven't had to go through, it just may be that God has a more weighty calling that he's placing on your life. And if you can understand that, if you can understand how to uh, steward that, you can get through that process quicker. So Paul says, walk worthy of the calling. In other words, let your lifestyle show up in the same weightiness that God has called you into. So he goes on, he says, uh, Verse two, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. We're gonna land it there this morning. Look at verse two again, with all humility. So the walk worthy of the calling, how do you do that? With all humility. These are progressive elements to you walking worthy. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What does unity look like? Humility. Gentleness. Patience. Bearing with one another in love. It means put up with other people's stuff. It means to have Another way to say it in the old English is long-suffering, forbearance, that we're able to walk with people as they go through their stuff and not get impatient and discard them. Matter of fact, there's an interesting verse in Romans. Paul said, you who are spiritual, bear the failings of the weak. Listen to what he's saying. He's saying the true measure of your spirituality 
is how much of another's weakness you can put up with what, without showing your own. The true measure of your spirituality is how much of someone else's weakness can you put up with and keep your love on. And he's not just talking about biting your lips. Sometimes we've got to bite our, lip, bite our tongue. But I'm talking about so it, it becomes so worked in us that we don't feel tempted to say what. Because we truly see from God's perspective. We don't have time to unpack these. Maybe we will next week. But let me just make a few comments because I want to get to this unity of the spirit. He says, uh, how does he put it? Um, with all humility. Humility is not a mask we put on. It's not something we try to white knuckle. It's we accept the revelation of truth. Humility is simply seeing yourself the way God sees you. Nothing more, nothing less. You no longer argue with God. You never take credit, ultimate credit for what you do because you knew it started with him. Why would we brag about anything when God, the very breath we breathe is a gift from heaven? The Greek word that Paul uses here, they didn't have a word in Greek or Greek, Grecian culture or Roman culture for that idea of humility because it was such a degrading, that, that was not something that they aspired to. They looked at it as someone groveling. Many people think that Paul invented the word to sum up this high value and it's, it's really the seedbed out of which all these other things grow. So we're, we, we walk in humility says, and out of humility, then that gentleness flows. That gentleness, we're tender with people. We're not impatient where we, we start to get an edge in our voice, where we discard them. There is a tenderness that exudes from us because we're truly humble. We realize everything that we have is, is on loan. <laughs> that we're just, we're, we're stewards of the gift of God. And so we, we walk in gentleness with people. And then he says, bearing with one another in love. And then here, here's where we really want to get to, verse three. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Eager to maintain. That word is also, eager to maintain, that phrase is also translated with, with haste. Make haste. Do it quickly. Keep short accounts. Go after this thing. He's talking about a zeal and a deep concern that we guard the unity of the spirit. That we're, we're, we're maintaining that, guarding it, we're staying on guard so that nothing will encroach upon the unity of the spirit. And he says, what keeps the unity of the spirit? There's a bond, there's an adhesive, there's something pulling us together. And he tells us what it is. It's the bond of peace. So the secret to unity is keeping the peace. The, the word bond there is syndesmos. It's where we get the word desmology. Desmology is the medical, it's, it's, the, it's that, that, uh, that, it's anatomy, the study of anatomy, but a very specific part of anatomy, and that's of ligaments. We have ligaments, we have cartilage, we have tendons, uh, and they're all made of this fibrous collagen stuff, uh, the, the, um, the cartilage is a cushion between the bones. Uh, tendons uh, uh, keep, tie our muscle to our bone, but ligaments pull the bones together. Remember those, those little plastic skeletons or little people, and you'd push that little button, and the rubber band holding them together, and they'd kind of fall down, and then you'd push them up. That's what we would be without ligaments. We'd just be kind of hanging. We'd be a pile of bones. So you think about it. What We have this element of our anatomy that is unyielding. You, it doesn't bend, or at least not very much, especially the older you get. And it's called your skeletal systems. It's your bones. It's the unyielding structure of the body. And every body, every organization, and every church needs structure. 
It needs a skeletal system to get up and get something done. Otherwise, we're just a blob of life. We may be fun to be around, but we don't get a whole lot done. I've attended that church before. And so we, we, have, we have structure. But it, within the structure, there's something that keeps us connected and enables us to function and also enables us to have movement and even absorb stress. And it's our ligaments. That's the word that Paul is using. Your, the ligaments of peace. I, I find that fascinating. My daughter has, has what's called hypertonicity. My daughter, Elisa. I took her to the doctor the other day for something totally disconnected. And I injured her coming out of the doctor's office. And she ended up bedridden for several weeks. What happened is, is her foot was hanging off her wheelchair. I was putting her in the... Uh, the, the wheelchair van, and her foot just caught the doorway just a little bit and moved her foot back about this much. She went, ouch, to you and I, it wouldn't be a big deal. I think she either tore cartilage or ligaments because of the hypertonicity. See, she always lives under stress. So when stress was introduced that most of us could absorb, it injured her, and it it caused her to be disabled to a greater degree. And this is the lesson for you and I. If we live in stress, you see, see her body is not cooperating with her. She has a disability called cerebral palsy. And so her muscles are always tight. She's, she's just, her, her muscles, it's called hypertonicity. She's always under stress. There are relationships like that. The norm is stressful. There are churches like that. The norm is stressful. It's a handicapped relationship. It's a handicapped body of people. And they can live like that, but the smallest little stress that would cause you and I to say, ouch, that was uncomfortable and move on, to her, caused her to end up on all kinds of drugs and pain medication and she was in bed for weeks and we couldn't hardly, just barely touch her and she would start crying. And there are a lot of relationships in life that we don't, we're not living in unity. We're not guarding the unity of the spirit. We, stress and that kind of, uh, the, the stress in the relationship is always there. And so when stressful time comes, it causes a break. It causes a tear. Hard times are going to come. They, they always do. Every one of us have them in our life. But what we've got to learn to do is guard the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace and keep short accounts. Make haste. Guard that thing. We don't allow that stress between us. And if there is stress, we go after that thing. And one of the things that we're, we need to do is we, have, we walk in humility one for another. It's not that, well, I'm stressed and I think you have something against me and I'm gonna force you to humble yourself and come to me and make, no, that's not what Paul said. He didn't say, make sure your brothers and sisters walk in humility towards you. He said, you walk in humility, you walk in forbearance and long suffering, walk in peace. And when we do that, when that is the reigning relational fabric that we live in, when hard times come, we can absorb that stress and go back. The ligaments are an amazing thing. You can bend a leg and cause great stress and even bend it beyond what it should be for a short amount of time and it will absorb that stress and go right back and the connection and the function remains. But if you stretch it too much for too long, you will injure it and you will disable that member of your body. So Paul says, guard the ligaments. <laughs> guard the unity of the spirit through the ligaments of peace. Now, we take out your communion stuff. <laughs> if you go in the New Testament, this is a fascinating study. We've talked about these in, in more teaching settings and classes before. But when you look at the biblical concept of peace, you're going to find out throughout Scripture that there's another word that shows up in relation to it. And it's more foundational. It's foundational to peace. 
Peace is relational. But there's something that precipitates peace that is personal. What I mean is this. If you look out throughout the New Testament, I'll quote you a few verses. The Beatitudes. Before you say, blessed is the peacemaker, for they shall inherit the, king, the, the earth. You know what the, the, the one just before that is? It precipitates it. In other words, peacemaking flows out of this one. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You can't be a peacemaker unless you're pure in heart. You say, Pastor, I think you're making too much out of one passage. Let's go to James chapter four. The wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, comma, then peace-loving. It's not a coincidence that there's an order that James picks up on that Jesus already laid out for us. Why is that? Why would purity precipitate peace? Because purity deals with the selfish ambition in our heart, the hidden agendas of our heart. When James says the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, prior to that he said the wisdom, this wisdom doesn't come from above but is earthly, unspiritual, and of the devil. He says there's a type of wisdom that is earthly, unspiritual, and of the devil. What's the markers of that? He says it's bitter envy and selfish ambition. When we go into a scenario and what our thought, when our thoughts are, what's in it for me? How can I finagle this thing so it's good for me? I win, you lose. If I can't win, we, we're both gonna lose, but I'm gonna get something out of this. That is an impure heart. When the New Testament talks about heart purity, it's not talking about moral sexual purity. Yes, that can be included, but the primary thrust of what is being talked about in the New Testament is the motives by which we live. As we're not living from self-centeredness, but we're living from a heart purity that we just want Jesus to be glorified. When James says the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, what he's saying is if you want the wisdom of God You deal with your heart on the front end because there's revelation from heaven, wisdom from God. He longs to pour out to us, but he will withhold from us until our heart is pure. He can't give it to us. That's why in John 7, when the Pharisees, the scribes came to Jesus and they said, where did you get such teaching? He answered their question in such a way that they didn't think he was answering the question. He often did that. They said, where did you get such teaching? And he said, I came not to please myself, but the one who sent me. And I'm sure this is the sound they heard in their head. I, I, I. They say, that's not what we asked. We weren't asking your, your, your motive. We're asking the source of your wisdom. And Jesus is saying, you don't understand. My secret source is my motive. Because I just want to glorify him. The heavens open and God will share anything with me. Because he can trust me with it. I'm not going to use it for my own selfish gain. I'm not in this for selfish ambition. I'm pure in heart. James says this. The wisdom that comes from above is first of all pure and then peace-loving. What is he talking about? The only people God can really use to broker, to be a mediator and broker a deal in conflict is the person who has no ulterior motives. When we really come into it, we say, Jesus, I just want you to be glorified. I just want your favor on their life, on ours. Lord, we just want to be right with you. What he's saying is, if you can do that, you're blessable. Nothing can keep you from the blessing. We can try to break in. We have our own selfish ambition. We're trying to break into the blessing, and we actually bar the door to the blessing of God. But if we lay it down and say, God, I just want you to be glorified, we become blessable. We begin to have insight, and we can be Bearers of peace. Now, this is beautiful in James. Tear this off so you know I'm moving ahead, okay? Open your, just the top one. I want to tell you, if you open the bottom one first, it's hard to get the first one. So just open up the bread. James, in that passage, he shows two types of wisdom, two different motives from which it comes, 
and two different results, two different harvests. In the wisdom that comes from the earth, he says it's earthly, unspiritual, and of the devil, and that where you find it, you'll find disorder and every evil practice. I don't know about you, but I don't want anything to do with that type of wisdom. And it is a type of wisdom. James calls it that. But the result is every evil practice. The second body of wisdom, the wisdom that comes from above, which is first pure, then peace-loving, he says, and peacemakers, see, you gotta be pure to move into being a peacemaker. And this is the key to guarding the unity of the spirit because what it does is it reduces the stress in the environment. So when stress comes, we can absorb it. He says, peacemakers, that's us when we walk pure in heart. So into peace, we literally create an environment of peace. It's peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness, of fruitfulness. I'm telling you, that's what God is offering us. But we gotta deal with us. We gotta say, God, if there's anything in me, if I have ought in my heart towards any brother or sister, Lord, that, that, that one that irritates me and rubs me wrong, give me a, a, a affection for them. I want a warm affection to just bubble up in my heart when I see that person that used to irritate me. I want to stake my claim there and say, God, I'm going to establish the love of God, an expression of who you are in that relationship, because that's one that's going to be tested in the most. And we begin to be long-suffering and forbearing with one another in love. I'm telling you, we have a prophetic invitation from heaven on this point. It's true for anyone, it's in the word. But God gave us a prophetic invitation through an open vision to your pastor. Before we receive this morning, I want to say it was Tuesday. We were in, in intercession, and I'll ask, does anybody have anything? And Amy Strickland, Amy, wave at everybody there. Amy down there in the orange. She uh, often I'll say I'll feel like I need to ask Amy if she got anything. And she said, she said, yes, I, I kept, she said, I've seen this several times. It was ranks of the demonic coming against us. And she said, I was, I was, she didn't use this word. She's like an undercover agent. She was behind the, the scenes. They couldn't see her, but she could listen in on their conversation. Kind of like what God did with Gideon and overheard the enemy sees you as a roll of bread that's going to tumble the enemy. I mean, that's, an, that's, a, that's good stuff when you hear that from the enemy. She said, I could hear the enemy saying, we're going to have to break rank because they're living in unity. And she said she could hear the discouragement among the ranks of hell. Listen, hear the discouragement among the ranks of hell. Because when God commands his blessing, there's nothing they can do. They're shut out. What the enemy tries to do is send an unhealthy person into a healthy environment to begin to disrupt it. But God wants to release such a level of emotional health that we can absorb the stress of unhealthy people and love them into health. But if we're already unhealthy and we're already living under the stress of a handicapped body of Christ then there's a tipping point. We bump our foot on the door and we end up disabled and in bed. God wants to give us the victory. Just hold your bread up this morning. First Corinthians, it talks about not taking the bread unworthily. He says, if you take it and you don't recognize the body of Christ, he's talking about this, this body. His body was broken for this body. And for us to take of this bread and say, God, I accept what you did for me, but I reject the others you did for it, is taking it unworthily. It's when we say, I, I don't care about my brother and sister, they irritate me. Or they've offended me, or they've hurt me. Be patient, loving, forbearing. My petty little grievances are nothing compared to what he went through. And I can't allow to those petty grievances to keep all of us 
from what he wants to bring us into. That's what's on the line. So walk worthy of the calling. Take your bread and break it, would you? Jesus, we thank you for your broken body, broken for us. Now, Lord, I ask that you would break our hearts for those around us. Lord, we're asking that you would build such health in this body that we, we our white blood cells as a church can fight off every, every infection, that we can absorb stress and keep on running after you. Lord, that you're able to plant people that need healing and we just absorb them into the environment and they're brought to wholeness and health. We thank you for it. Let's eat the bread. Now peel off the other one. Paul said on the night that Jesus first partook of this, he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Paul wasn't there. God felt it so important that by revelation, he gave Paul insight into what happened. I don't know if it was a vision, a dream. Somehow Paul knew the details of what happened in that room. It was that important. Some movements call this the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. We often call it communion. It's a compound world word, common union. This is what makes us one. It's an old saying, blood is thicker than water, but spirit is thicker than blood. We're family because of this. So Father, I'm asking God that you would help us to treat one another accordingly. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Let's drink. Hallelujah. Well, I've already gone over. Why don't you go ahead and stand this morning? Hallelujah. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for your invitation to us, Lord. We don't take it lightly. God, we ask for your grace to come upon us in a greater degree. Lord, we want to go deeper. We want to go higher with you. Lord, have your way. Father, we invite your conviction, your correction. And Lord, any part of us that would fight it, Lord, we side with you against ourselves. Go after it, Lord. Have it all. I'm reminded of that song. He will not relent until he has it all. God, we're, we side with you. Don't relent until you have every bit of us. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.